In tonight's episode of Old News, all currency will be referred to as pesos. Hello, my name's David. And my name's Russell. It's good to be back. And this is Old News. (laughs) (laughs) Should we try that again? No, let's just leave that. That'll be fine. First thing to say is hello to all our new listeners. Hello. We've got a a heck of a lot of new listeners all of a sudden. Which is fantastic uh, news for old news. It is. And it's all thanks to uh, the Scathing Atheist podcast for playing our Farnsworth quote. So in case you're wondering what on earth that is all about, go listen to their fine podcast. Those guys laugh really hard all the way through there. <laughs> they do. <laughs> they seem to have, Well, it's, 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 uh, there's uh, two guys. To, to, three guys. Three guys and a girl. No, just, oh, well, yes. yes three guys yeah. and a girl yeah, who... Yeah. She, she's Woman. not in the main group, if you like. Well, she does her own segments. I should say, rather, girls very patronising on me. Yeah. But they're they're fantastic, and they seem to have a huge amount of fun. And it's very loud. rude. It's it very is rude. rather. It's rather rude. This, the tone they strike is rather different to us. Old news. The ongoing drama that is Russell's car. Yes. What ah, happened? What a disaster. So my car that I thought would be fixed turned out not to be fixed, and indeed needs a new engine, which is just very embarrassing <laughs> all round and has now ended up being towed from North Wales to somewhere in London and I don't really know where as such in London where I, yeah. they might be fixing it <laughs> your car something. is in an indeterminate spot <laughs> it's in one of the biggest cities in the world <laughs> Schrodinger's car at the minute <laughs> it'd be Got a I've got to say, I wouldn't say it's embarrassing that it needs a new engine. I'd say it's annoying that it needs it's a new engine. It's incredibly annoying. And I think one of the things really interesting, right, perhaps this might relate to the subject this evening, and that, like what was quite a small human error like on one thing led to a cascade of mechanical failures yeah. and has led to a catastrophic destruction of the power plant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, and it is catastrophic to the tune of God knows how many British pesos. <laughs> yeah. Great British pesos. Great British pesos. So in the meantime, I've had to hire a car to get me about the place, and it has an automatic gearbox, right? And I'm going to say something now which will just be utterly alien to uh, any American or Canadian listeners. I am unused to automatic gearboxes, and it has just been a nightmare for the last couple of days, because I keep wanting to grab hold of the stick and pull it in places it really doesn't want to go (laughs) (laughs) and a number of times I've been pulled up at traffic lights or whatever and find myself oh neutral reverse park Uh, oh no oh sorry I should just be back and drive again (laughs) yeah that's that's interesting because I've never when I've driven automatics, I've got used to them fairly quickly. Mm. The time I always sort of mention as causing me a problem was in Florida, driving automatics over there, obviously. A lot of their traffic lights are on cables across the middle of the junctions, mm-hmm. whereas I'm used to the traffic lights being at the corner, at the edge, yeah, where you stop. Yeah, at the edge of the road, yeah. And so I kept accidentally driving up to the lights in the middle of the junction, looking to my right and seeing a massive great American truck hurtling towards us, mm-hmm. honking its horn, <laughs> and then going, oh, crap. I should have stopped two Put, seconds prior. Putting my foot down on the accelerator, and because it was an automatic, it just went... Ah. <laughs> well, I- <laughs> 
I've noticed with the automatic though is that once you're stopped and you put your foot down because it's in low gear automatically and it just it just leaps off the spot right. and, I, and I've had, I've, I have managed to spin the wheels a couple of times I've got to say well. in San Francisco that happened to me quite a lot spinning the wheels but I think that was partly because the massive it's hills it's very steep yeah. 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 But, um, David's currently indicating the steepness of the hills with his hand it's a long time since you, I, I, it's a long time since you narrated my uh, the my miming actions <laughs> David's gesticulations the other thing is which I noticed because you're so used to operating the clutch with your left foot you're, you're quite heavy footed with that you know, it's just generally it's on off yeah. a little bit of find the right point on it but one of the things I found is I will leap on the brake with my left foot and of course you just tend to just go clump you just bring the car to a shuddering halt <laughs> and like the first the first day I, I had it I bashed my head three times <laughs> what like, off from, the steering wheel no for, off the ridge of where the, the sunroof is right but <laughs> it's like clunk ouch oh what have I done oh no what are you doing with Reverse, your seat height oh, no. oh, oh dear your yeah. head's high enough to hit the sunroof you're not that much taller than me. I have the seat in its lowest position. What? In yeah. that car as well? Yeah, it's really surprising. Mm. Old news. The B is back. The oh, year of indeterminate the strength. The B of indeterminate strength. This is the. Is this an IPA? This is an IPA. Yeah, we've both got IPAs, yeah. And it's yeah. very good, actually. Do you think? Yeah, it's per- perfectly fine. It's got that IPA hoppiness, and it's uh, the right colour. This one's. Oh, got a bit of. Um, this one's a bit cloudy. A bit of sediment. But it's. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one of the most unappealing aspects of anything that you're supposed to be consuming. Yeah, that, that's got sediment. That's yeah. sediment in it. Mm. Yeah, I suppose like round on cheese. You know. <laughs> I, I'm I'm always considered controversial because I generally eat the round on cheese. Which rind? Well, particularly if you've got a blue cheese. I like the rind on blue cheese. Oh, I did until I saw it under under a microscope. Right, is and it I was still wriggling around. Absolutely disgusted by the amount of wriggling that goes on. Yeah, oh, it's perfectly fine. <sighs> but it still mm. it it's still, still tastes nice. It does still taste nice. Those right. those tiny microscopic worm things taste delicious. <laughs> Great, you've really sold it to me. <laughs> This this still has to be better. Is it just the Italian cheese that they make up in, in the mountains, isn't it, where they bury it? Is that not French? Is it French, yeah. In the, and it's like, like a small worm or like a maggot or something that starts to crawl, and you can actually see them writhing around. When... Oh, no, no. The one I'm thinking of in France is they put it in barrels that they've been using for like a thousand years or something. Right. And uh, some of it comes out. I, I once heard it described as meaty. Meaty. <laughs> You don't want meaty cheese. That's that's bad crack. That is <laughs> meaty cheese. In in an interesting mirror image of that, I had a friend at the university who was from the Faroe Islands, and one of their national delicacies was to they they have these like wooden huts with like sort of open lattice sides, and they basically get a sheep and they hang it up, and they allow the wind to kind of just blow through and dry the sheep out, and when the meat, and when the meat has gone soft. Through rot, then it's ready to eat, <laughs> and he and he described that as being obviously like it spreads like soft cheese, so that's cheesy meat <laughs> as opposed to meaty cheese. <laughs> we should put these two things together. <laughs> no, <laughs> I've got no. the cheese, you've got the meat. Let's make lots of money. It's old news. 
So tonight's episode is about the Exxon Valdez oil spill, which occurred in Prince William Sound, Alaska, in March 24th, 1989. Just to apply the JFK test, I was nine years old at this point, probably eight years old. I really don't remember this. Do you not remember it? I remember uh, it. I don't. You know how we often say it doesn't feel that long ago, that sort of thing? This does feel that long ago that feels you know 1989 yeah that's about when i would have estimated it was it does feel the right distance in time ago i I suppose there's just been so many different incidents over the years of big oil spills i know they kind of just blur into one in in my mind of us seeing the standard tv footage of birds being cleaned yeah yeah one of the things i think i I would have to come clean with the listeners to here is that this subject was suggested by one of our listeners who did work in the marine industry my profession is as a a seafarer as an engineer and so i found when i was doing the research for this i kept getting bogged down in the detail and I, i was reading the report from the ntsb which is the national transportation safety board in the u.s that runs to 100 and odd pages and i was plowing through that and i realized that I could very easily bore the listeners to death with the detail and some you know, like my, my, my opinion on certain things. And yeah. so if I do at any point blind you with science and I use a word where you think, what's that all about? Yeah. You know, I'll just tell me, Russell, you're speaking jargon. We should sort of go over the events of the day. So it starts in the evening time. It's about sort of seven o'clock the day before the, the ship gets ready for departure. Mm-hmm. And it finally leaves Valdez with the help of a couple of tugs. And then they set away and they're going through the sort of the channel. It's just after midnight and they're, they're in the channel where there is actually this what's called a traffic separation scheme. So this is quite common in a lot of busy channels between land masses. If you look at the, the maritime navigational charts, there'll be the tracks separate for traffic this way traffic that just like it is just like on a road on a road we're probably obviously a road's an obvious example but we're probably more used to thinking of that kind of thing in the air that airliners have the same sort of right yeah it's it's not always quite so strictly controlled there's not always and here you know the coast guards weren't exactly monitoring at any point here what, what, what was going on and so they're in they're in the traffic scheme the captain leaves the bridge I mean, the captain isn't always present on the bridge, but in confined waters like that, when you're still on like a standby condition, you would imagine... They had left the traffic scheme because he was avoiding icebergs. That's right, there was a certain amount of ice, and so we're going to deviate from the normal traffic separation to uh, avoid the ice. And so they'd make this enormous deviation, and then the third officer, who's obviously a junior officer is allowed to sort of man the bridge he's in charge with a with a lookout the lookout has just changed Mm -hmm. as well so one person has finished watch and a new guy has come on to watch you actually lady i think if i'm um, rightly and they go to turn to go back into the where they should be because the ice is sort of eased off and at that point it's too late they've missed missed the turning they've missed the turn <laughs> they've missed they've missed the light and they, they end up on the rocks and i was just looking at the uh, the ship specification here and talking about a ship that is 301 meters long which is i mean it's enormous uh, with a weight of 240,000 tons displaced like total displacement <laughs> which is just the overall weight of the ship plus mm-hmm. the cargo you know you imagine the energy in that i mean it wasn't quite up to full speed at that point full speed is 16 and a quarter knots which is uh, nautical miles per hour yeah. which uh, to a, a, a landlubber doesn't sound like very much, much. but 
for something that big. Yeah, you imagine the energy contained is just moving something that big, and yeah. I was astonished. I, I was reading a little bit about uh, again. This is where I could bore you to death, but about the damage that was done to the structure. I mean, they opened up all of the cargo tanks. The amount of steelwork that was ripped open, and you can imagine taking just one plate of steel and just trying to rip that. Well, you can't rip it with your hands, and you might need quite a big hydraulic machine to bend a piece of steel like that. And what was the total pollution, the total amount of oil that was discharged? Um, well, it's interesting. I'm asking because there's a few different numbers out there. I'll quote the one that I have, which yeah. is 41,000 metres cube of fuel, uh, of crude oil, sorry. Well, I've got 35,000 metric tonnes. Right, that would probably be about right, because mine's a yeah. volumetric measure, yours is a... Yeah. At this point, it might be interesting to listen to the captain's uh, radio call after they hit the reef. That recording was quite indistinct, uh, so David has a little transcript here just to uh, help you with what you just heard. Yeah, uh, it's Valdez back. Uh, we've uh, should be on your radar there. We fetched up uh, harder ground north of uh, Good Island off Bly Reef and uh, evidently uh, leaking some oil and uh, we're going to be here for a while and uh, if you want uh, so you're notified. Over. It's interesting isn't it? You were saying you felt he was a little laid back. Casual. He's very casual about it. I I know that professionals and so on will go into sort of automatic mode, you know, mm-hmm. like pilots on an aeroplane will get their books out and they'll read their, their instructions of what to do in an emergency and they'll be very matter-of-fact about it. Mm-hmm. But he seems so very casual about it and yeah. kind of doesn't know what he's trying to say or he hasn't got a clue really how bad the situation yeah. is. I don't know. I think maybe he's the enormity of the situation is dawning on him. He's, and that's just an incredible stress response. I suppose it could be that yeah. Yeah, he's realised he's just he's, ran a massive ship full of oil aground and caused a massive disaster. Yeah, be, how do you admit to that over the radio? And it does become quite obvious quite quick how how quickly they're losing fuel as well because the first officer goes down to the cargo, the cargo control room uh, where the, all, all the monitoring for the tanks and so on, and he goes down there and he, he he very quickly reports how much they've already lost in the first sort of few minutes. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting. I just wonder whether he doesn't grasp what's happening because it's so enormous. He's kind of just shutting down and going into a mode where he feels comfortable. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe that's my pot mm-hmm. sort of. I don't yeah, know, never met the man. Pot yeah. psychology kind kind of thing. Mm. Of course, the other aspect of this is the allegations that follow about what state Mr. Hazelwood was in. So we're, we're going to have to talk a little bit about that. Old news! If you'd like to get in touch with us here at Old News, you can have a look at us on our website, oldnews.podbean.com. Or you can email us at oldnewspod at gmail.com. 
We are on the Facebook at Old News Podcast. Or you can tweet us at Old News Pod. And you can go in search of us on YouTube. And we might be a little bit easier to find now because we've had more comments on there. More comments, please. Like, rate and subscribe. Old News! One thing I wanted to talk about was I was going through like the technical details and it just made me smile. Uh, they talk about the navigation equipment on the ship. Apparently, the report says it's all fully functional. There's one fellow who maintains that there was a radar that wasn't functioning properly. Yeah, I read that, yeah. Yeah, so that's a bit in dispute over the years. But there's a bit about uh, navigation equipment and there's, there's one where it would receive a feed from GPS, but this wasn't fitted. And I was thinking, that's interesting, because that must have been the very early days of it GPS. It must have been. I was, I was just about to say, was there really GPS in, in uh, 1989? Yeah. But, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, there was GPS, and there was a thing called DGPS, because the GPS signal used to be scrambled. Yeah. So you used to have to have a piece of kit that was called differential GPS. And that was a commercial bit of gear, where the commercial companies had figured out how to descramble the signal. Yeah. And those were extraordinarily expensive. They were expensive for a long time until the Americans just decided to get rid of the, the scramble the, the yeah. scramble on the signal. So I thought it was interesting that you know, a, a modern ship would probably have just had a course plotted into the electronic charts and all that, and it just would have gone ding, 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 alarm, mm-hmm. where the hell are you? Yeah. Now, of course, I mean, ships still run aground, but technology would have prevented it more readily these days. Which I think naturally sort of moves into the causes, you know, and anybody who wants to can read the uh, the reports, you know, it's all public domain and there's an awful lot of press commentary about it. But this is so much a human factors incident. This is very little to do with technology. Well, it's very basic technology. I mean, the ship was quite new. The ship was built in 1986. So it was delivered on, on, in December 1986, so it's only three years old. This is quite a new ship, but the technology is still quite basic at that time. You know, there's not so much of the, the computer control and satellite tracking and satellite navigation, which we have now. You know, it was this, the kind of gear we'd still been using since the 50s, really. Yeah. Technology hadn't progressed a huge amount at that point. This is all about the way the humans managed it. And the first point is, I mean, we're going to, we're going to have to breach this subject, is about alcohol. During the day before the incident, while they were still in port loading the cargo the day before, the captain, the chief engineer, and the radio officer go ashore to do the bits and bobs of the business and whatever. And then they go have lunch at a restaurant and they have something to drink. They then go to a bar. And relax. And relax. Then... Then they order a pizza and they wait They wait in a bar for the pizza to be cooked. Then they get the pizza and they get, get a, a taxi back to the terminal to go back on board ship. The background of this, and I think like exhibit A for the prosecution, is that Joseph Hazelwood, the captain, he has a history, like quite a recent history in 1985, of being admitted to hospital for treat, treatment for alcoholism. And he has a certain amount of time off work. And then, but then he's reinstated and... You know, presumably everything's a-okay. But uh, the Exxon can't really display any paper trail about, like, what follow-up care he got, mm. what monitoring he got. Exxon seemed to say everything is fine. Obviously, the suspicion here is that his drinking is, is probably out of control. At this point in 1989, isn't he suffering a breakdown in his marriage? Is he adding well? Yeah. And so there's this going on. So the suspicion is that this is somebody who is a captain who is probably very dominant on board the ship. 
mm-hmm. people can't challenge him and he's he's drinking he's maybe he's out of control there's a there's a whole story about him uh, destroying a bottle of booze in the lounge on board the ship one morning earlier on in the trip so that's as in there's all this sort of circumstantial stuff that swirls around on one hand you've got the the evidence that of like the blood alcohol levels whatever yes he does have a certain amount of alcohol in his blood but it's not terrible yeah no it's not i mean it's excessive but it's not absolutely blotto drunk similarly with the rest of the crew that protested but also i thought it was really interesting just reading some of the reports the americans put out like the media their attitude towards alcohol is very i don't know puritanical it is puritanical and it's really obvious if you, if you were to take the reported face value like about the lunch yeah. he had one beer or two beers or whatever right right that's the, not, the yeah. tone is they were drinking beers they were drinking underlined exclamation mark to me it's just like we'll have a beer with lunch yes yeah but i Okay, I work in an environment now that is alcohol-free, which is fine, you know, whatever. But I worked, uh, very briefly, I worked in a shipyard in Italy where they had vending machines with beer in. <laughs> okay, so you can imagine, imagine that vending machine in a British shipyard mm-hmm. would just get... Emptied. Emptied, yeah, immediately. Right? Yeah. But the Italians would just, the Italian worker would just go have one bottle of beer with lunch, with a yeah. sandwich. Oh, that's fine. We're somewhere in the in the middle where we're kind of okay with drinking, but it can be a bit out of control at times. In Britain, it's very much, there's an appropriate time for drinking. and There's an appropriate time for drinking. There's an inappropriate time for drinking. But when it's the appropriate time, you go all out. And that's fine, isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah. 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 Well, well it, yeah. to a point, right? Whereas, I don't know, the American attitude, and certainly what's reported, the American press is very sort of... My God, these people had a drink, mm-hmm. but they were off duty. Yeah, they're allowed to. Yeah, they're allowed to. Right. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting, and I think I can't decide. Having read just a little bit, I can't decide how much alcohol ha- is is a factor. I think it's a factor, but I don't think it's the it's the one sole factor. I think his decision to leave the bridge while this manoeuvre was being done mm-hmm. says, well, maybe his judgment is impaired. But that could easily just be like, you, you used the C word before, didn't you? You said complacency. Yes. Th- that's what came across to me in my research. Everything about it is complacency. These trips, that this was a well-oiled machine, basically, going from Alaska to California. And as time went on, the crews were reduced sort of undermanned yeah. to a yeah, level the, where they were undermanned. The manning had been reduced to a minimum. But yeah. the, you can imagine the crews would just be, they'd be bored, they'd be, we've done this a million times, there's nothing unusual here. Yeah. Yeah, I can leave the bridge. I'm yeah. sure these people are capable of doing it. Yeah, and interestingly, it's a junior officer as well. It's not like it's the first mate, or even the second mate, it's the third mate, you know, the most junior member of the officers who's left in charge of the bridge to do that manoeuvre. Because he, he asks them if it's fine, and he says, yes, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah, okay, I, it's okay, I, I can cope. The other sort of hu- human thing is about fatigue as well, yeah. because the manning had been cut. And one of the things that Exxon are kind of accused of doing is they refuse to give people overtime because that would say that we need more people. If we're giving people overtime hours and paying them overtime pay... Yeah, we should have more people on the ship. 
That's right. Yeah. So now not only are we on demand, we're maybe not getting the work done. Mm-hmm. This is the allegation. And certainly the Siemens Union in the States, is the, the, this is their position. Fatigue is definitely a problem. And so the, there's a strong suspicion that that third officer who's left on the bridge, who says everything is fine, mm-hmm. is actually really tired. And that's, that's the thing that that kind of fatigue can do is breeds overconfidence. It is human factors, but it's commercial factors as well. It's that pressure to reduce, yeah, make more profit, 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 profit. And and Exxon is not short of a few. It's not short of a few bob. Oh yeah, of American pesos. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) In tonight's episode of Old News, all currency will be referred to as pesos. Old. Use. So we can't talk about this without talking about the environment. And you know, you you looked a little bit about the environmental impact. As with all oil spill incidents, the the pictures you see on the television after you've seen a ship with smoke spewing out the top of it or something like that is you'll see the the seabirds and the the sea lions, what have you covered in oil and getting cleaned. In terms of amount of oil spilled, Exxon Valdez is now out of the top 50. It's the 54th largest spill. Yeah, but it's probably the most famous. Probably. Probably. Yeah. And that's because of the environmental impact it had. In terms of death tolls, because we do like a bit of death and destruction on <laughs> old news. news. <laughs> Two, 250,000 seabirds. 3,000 sea otters, 300 harbour seals, and counting, we'll come to that. Right. 250 bald eagles. Oh, wow. Y- yeah. 22 killer whales, billions of salmon <laughs> salmon eggs. Yes. The fish stocks collapsed. Yeah, and particularly the herring stock, which was kind of the mainstay of the ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, that, I mean, that's a lot of animal deaths. The reason I said the um, harbour seals still counting is because they cleared a lot of the... They cleared most of the oil away, mm-hmm. one way or another. We'll probably go into that a little bit deeper in a minute. But there are still beaches where there's still oil underneath, right. which they thought should have disappeared by now, but it hasn't. And that's still affecting the seals because the seals will go and hunt for uh, clams... So they dig into the sand, dig into the sand, hit the the oil, oil and they die. So there's probably more than the 300 harbour seals die because of it now. Did you come across this 4% figure? There's all about the the sort of the remaining oil that that sort of remains sort of caught in the the sands, whatever. Apparently, they're talking about there's a dissipation rate of like the of this oil disappearing 4% per year. Right. Which is very, which is very slow. Very slow, yeah. yeah. Very, very slow, yeah. yeah. So much of this depends on where your crude oil comes from. I did look very briefly at the Brer incident. Remember when the Brer oil tanker went aground off the northern shores of Scotland? Yeah. And that was full of oil that was from uh, the North Sea. And that's a very, it's a very light crude. It's very light. I mean, it's still heavy and gloopy. Relatively speaking, it's a light crude speaking, oil. Relatively speaking, it's a light crude oil. And that dissipated a lot quicker than anybody really thought. Yeah. That really exceeded expectations. And you've got this stuff here that's still hanging around years and years late, later. We're talking 30 years now, aren't we? Yeah. Well, they, they think that's partly because of where it is. It's on these pebbly beaches underneath the pebbles, and the pebbles are protecting it from the environment. The biggest effect on the cleanup wasn't human cleanup it was wave action and winter storm action right that's what had by far the biggest effect on cleaning it up yeah but of course these pebbly beaches 
the storms, the waves don't have as much effect on the oil. The oil industry and the maritime industry in that part of the world just really hadn't geared up properly for a major incident. Yeah. And of course, it's, it's very remote. It's miles away from civilization. Very difficult to get to. The weather quickly turns yeah. against well, the, you. The cleanup lasted four summers. I quite like the idea that it was measured in summers. Right. But of course, that's because it's in Alaska. So you can't whole, say four years. There's a whole six months of time this is wasting where you can't do anything. You can't do anything, yeah. yeah. And at peak cleanup, there was 10,000 workers involved. Wow. So that's not total workers over the four summers. That's peak. That's so at one point. At yeah. one point, there was 10,000 workers. A hun- uh, sorry, 1,000 boats and 100 aeroplanes and helicopters involved. Right. So it was a massive operation once they did get it underway. And because the, the methods they used for cleanup, at first they were using some sort of solvent. Uh, I was reading a bit about this, like there's a certain number of the, the people who were involved in the cleanup in the very early stages found that the solvent was affecting them. And there's some thought that right. you know, they have succumbed to cancers and... Okay. posting so on anyway it was decided quite early on that they would move to was it hot and cold water yeah so i don't know if they did these at the same time or if they did one and then the other uh, but hot and cold water treatment which is basically men with big powerful hoses standing at the top of the beach and squirting water at the oil mm-hmm sort of down the beach to the shoreline and then you have a boom or some other equipment to catch the oil which you can then soak up you either soak it up with oil absorbent materials or you you scoop it up or yeah yeah, there's lots of different methods of getting the oil out but they had to stop the hot water treatment because it was having a worse effect on animals than the oil would because it was literally cooking them. Right, because the, the bit that I read was the saying that the, the hot water jet wash was taking away like the small sand and the grit and the, like the sediment. In that is held the, the macrofauna. Right. I guess the very, very small sea animals, seabed animals, and the bacteria and everything else, you know, the algae and everything else that grows in that. You know, and that's the basis of the ecosystem, isn't it? It's the very mm-hmm. bottom of the food chain. Yeah. And, and sort of by washing all that away and cooking it yeah you're taking it away which affects everything yeah. further up the food chain did you see the thing about the orca pods no but apparently in prince william sound uh, there was two distinct pods one that is sort of resident uh, and they were very badly affected they, they have started to come back now their, their numbers are nearly back to what they were pre the incident but there was a second pod of orcas there was a transitory pod their sort of lifestyle was to pass through Prince William Sound and had like a much broader range but consensus of opinion is that they have gone they're just decimated will never recover so there's these permanent changes to the ecosystem there's apparently salmon stocks have recovered but they're still supported by like a breeding program up the rivers so I always wonder is that not a bit artificial that they've recovered but only because of human intervention elsewhere yeah I don't know the human effect of that, you know, people who are out of work, particularly fishermen, yeah, you know, is very much an important bit of, of the overall economy in that part of the world, I imagine. And there's a there's a there's a court case very early on brought brought against Exxon. This sort of takes me to the next point I wanted to look at. And I don't know the ins and outs of it because I'm not not a, a maritime legal expert by any stretch. But essentially, there's an enormous payout awarded in sort of terms of punitive damages, punitive against Exxon. And two, you know, the people who've been affected, particularly cleanup workers, the people who uh, had to pay for that cost, and you know, people who were put out of business from 
fishing and so on but then Exxon because they're such a lovely fuzzy pro-people kind of company sent out an army of lawyers to challenge all of these claims Mm-hmm. One one by one, and they ended up being the big sort of class action lawsuit with an American thing. And it ends up in the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court finds in favour of Exxon. Really? Yeah. Really? And so they they move from this model of kind of punitive damages to actual damages, and the result is that what well, it's, it's some enormous sums. Like it basically. Exxon's profit for one year was the original fine. They end up paying about ten cents in the dollar of the original fine. It's old news. The next part of the story I wanted to look at was what happened to ships themselves in in light of this, and how in some ways we didn't learn the lessons here in Europe that America had learned from Exxon Valdez incident. But you looked a little bit into like the life and times of the Exxon Valdez ship itself. Yeah. Uh, so do you want to just give that potted history because yeah. it's not great. It's quite fun in a, in a in a sort of disastrous sort way. Of way. Um, so it runs aground. Take they take it away and fix it, which I didn't know that it got mm-hmm. fixed quite quickly. The Oil Pollution Act is passed in the United States, which means that all oil tankers in American waters must be double hulled which is might be something you talk about later I don't mm-hmm. know yeah, okay. but in Europe we don't pass a similar law so the Exxon Valdez is renamed the Exxon Mediterranean and is moved to Europe and tootles around Europe for quite some time until eventually the EU does decide to pass the an equivalent law the Exxon Mediterranean mm-hmm. is moved to Asia yeah, is is she sold on by that point? It is. It, she yeah. does have several name changes. She becomes the Sea River Mediterranean, right, and then the SR Mediterranean, and by the time she's moved to Asia, becomes just the Mediterranean. Spends a bit of time as an oil tanker pootling around Asia, and then is eventually converted to an ore carrier called the Dongfang Ocean. And in two thousand and ten. So not that so long not ago. not that long ago. And she's an old girl by this point. Old ship by now, yeah. She hits a cargo ship called the Ali, or Ali, A-A-L-I, in the Yellow Sea. Right. Damaging both ships. And at this point, that makes the Dongfang Ocean basically unnecessary. But just for laughs, it seems, they decide to change its name again. Right. So she becomes the Oriental Nicety. <laughs> and is sold to an Indian wrecking company. Uh, now, that, that is actually very standard practice in the industry that when a ship is sold for scrap, yeah. they change, oh, they change, they change, its change name. the name. That's right. Right, okay. It he- heads off to India, but while it's heading off to India, there's a lot of environmental concerns. I really... Yeah, about the fact that this ship might contain asbestos and PCBs. PCBs, yeah polychlorinated by phenyls. Yeah. It's interesting when we've, we've had all kinds of debates in the UK about whether we should import uh, ex-American Navy ships to be scrapped here because do they contain PCBs and things. Yeah. But that's just a whole other issue. One of the things I find surprising is the presence of asbestos. Yeah. The ship that was built in 1986. I thought, well... Yeah, that so, would be something that would be almost unheard of yeah. in Far Eastern practice. Well, here's the thing. Because Uh, she's built in the US. Yeah. She's made to hang offshore for two months, fully Mm -hmm. fully crewed and all that kind of thing. A great expense. A great expense. 
but it's then realised that she doesn't contain any of these things and she's finally driven ashore and right. you wonder up. how much of this is just people oh this is the Exxon Valdez and there's a lot of hoo-ha you do occasionally get get these sort of political things yeah. where scrapping ships becomes a big ding dong because yeah. it's a ship we've heard of from what I read it was the company that bought it's problem the company that bought it had a history of taking on dangerous ships and there'd oh. been a big ding dong about their previous ship right okay so a big ding dong was made about this one Possibly without evidence that the ship was a problem at all. It oh, was right, based okay. around what the company had done, had in done the past, that rather than what the ship had been in the oh, past. Right. Oh, right. So how interesting. Yeah. You were talking about the double skins. You know, the Americans passed the the whole double hull law, and here in Europe and elsewhere, we continue merrily along with the same old practices. And I think what changes minds in Europe is the Erica disaster, which is off the coast of France. Apparently, the the Erica, uh, she was a popular ship with the industry. Uh, She was built with 10% less steel than equivalent size ships. Oh, great. Less steel in my oil tanker. Less steel in my oil tanker results in cheap oil tanker to build. Yes. Cheap to hire, right? Uh Uh, Easy to haul. (laughs) Easy to haul. She runs aground, and it's a terrible disaster. And then subsequently, in 2002, we have the Prestige disaster, which I think people might might have forgotten about that. That was off the coast of Galicia in Spain. Uh, Galicia. Galicia. And the the, sort of the Portuguese coast. One thing that I'll be getting my high horse about that is that uh, she started to leak, right? She was damaged and she started to leak. And what they wanted to do was tow her into port and go, no, right, we need a port of safety, a port of refuge, and then we can limit the damage. And this is, this is a case of where environmental concerns overrode any sort of common sense, which is really weird. Everybody said, no, I'm not having a leaking oil tanker come into my port. And so she was denied any refuge. Right, and she floated for another X many does it six days. That says that this fatally crippled ship was still quite strong. It's a testament to the naval architecture of that ship that she lasted so long despite being critically damaged. And then she sank at sea. Right, and so the oil went, went everywhere, everywhere over thousands of miles of coastline. Right. Yeah, and I must admit, although my personal politics is is quite has a green tinge. Mm-hmm. That was a massive own goal for the Green Lobby. Yeah, that that's stupidity. Yeah. yeah, it was beyond stupid. Don't you bring this oil into my port? Oh, the you know whatever the the the, the pollution. <laughs> yeah. Where's it going to go? It's going to. Everyone can have some splurge. Yeah, exactly, madness. To go back to the double the double skin thing. Suddenly, this focuses minds, and now the like the global governance at International Mar- Maritime Organization steps in. And now all tankers have to be double skinned. I think that's been interesting. I hope I haven't bored too many people with. No, I don't think so. Too much specialist jargon or knowledge. There'll be a bit of editing done. Yeah. <laughs> Old news. Thank you to bensound.com for use of their royalty free music. Thank you to Peter Kidson for the use of his voice. And thank you to Katie for suggesting this week's podcast topic. And thank you for listening. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.